0: Chapter 36 Compromise Lorne was adamantly opposed to our interference in what was, in truth, Duke Adowain's responsibilities. The dungeon and the knockers were located within his territories. The Kelpie herd were granted their lands based on treaties they had signed with him. She argued, effectively, that interfering in the management and responsibilities of a ranked duke could be seen as an affront to his prerogatives. Even a declaration of war if he chooses to construe our actions as trespass. Euron and Cedric were both adamant that we had both an opportunity and responsibility to act. And as a ranked prince, I not only outranked Duke Adouin, but was system supported since my efforts to return Blaine and his family and see that justice was served was part of a quest. I myself was more curious than anything. I wanted to know what a dungeon was like on Talum, and if it remotely resembled what was detailed in novels and games on Earth. That's crap, and you know it, Lorne argued, gaining my attention. Just because system generates a quest doesn't absolve an individual from Sealy Law. Otherwise, every criminal action could use system quests as justification and defense. I had to kill this family and steal their wealth. The system gave me a quest is not an excuse. You are simply engaging in sophistry. There is no way to prove system generated and gave you a quest. They can't be shared, and they can't be displayed. Quests are unique to each person and are generated in response to that person's specific circumstances. There are no ways to share quests or standard quests that everyone can do for experience? I ask Herod. Not really. There are quests that are generated and offered to many people. A battle, for instance, may generate a quest to defend a location or rescue someone. As for standard quests, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. How to explain. For example, a blacksmith apprentice is tasked to make a dagger from his master. He crafts the dagger and turns it in. Isn't that a repeatable quest? No, of course not. That's his job. He may gain skill progression in crafting or blacksmithing, but there is no quest associated with that. So no quest to seek out 10 herbs or go kill 10 rats for Farmer Brown. The sound of Carrod's laughter was interesting. I don't think I'd experienced this before. It was very similar to the rush you get when you drink that first cup of coffee in the morning, or smoke a cigarette after a good meal. Our souls were linked, so his emotions actually had physiological repercussions on my body. It was interesting to discover, and I made a mental note to experiment with the parameters of this link. I was reminded that there would be a time he must serve the hunt, and I wondered if his actions and emotions when he was fighting would bleed through and transfer through this emotional connection. No, there are no NPCs standing in the same spot, offering quests to anyone that opens a dialogue box. Not a game, remember? Carrod said, laughter evident. Wait, I said as the arguing around me began to intensify, allowing me to ignore Carrad's, which was helpful because his laughter was at my expense. There is an easy solution to this, Activating the communication crystal on my watch, I connected to Brienne, my assistant. She and Basil had traveled ahead with Jenny to set up our next staging area. I was worried about bringing too many people to the Kelpie settlement, unsure if we would need to fight. By splitting those I considered staff and individuals with no combat ability and sending them ahead, I thought if the worst happened and we had to fight our way out, there would be fewer people that were more deadweight than useful. Your Highness, Brienne said, once our crystals had connected, and a magic hollow projection of each of our forms was created. Brienne, we have hit a snag here. It seems there is an undeclared dungeon that the former Kelpie Lord hid from Duke Adewine and his people. To make matters worse, there is a knocker community and duchess that has been trapped within and exploited. I'm unsure what condition they may be in, or how long they have been trapped in this dungeon. Contact Duke Adewain's people for me, give them my contact information, and explain I need to speak with someone. Preferably the Duke, I said, explaining. It was at least an hour before my communication crystal beeped. Connecting, I was a bit surprised to find Brienne contacting me, and not Duke Adewain or his staff. Sir, I've explained the situation to Duke Addoine's staff. They reminded me that courtesy forbids Duke Addoine or his people from contacting you until after he had paid his respects in person. They have been apprised of the situation. Lord Blaney's people were in talks with Duke Addoine's staff at the same time as I was. They have decided they would send people to audit the herd, examine the mine, and try to categorise the dungeon. In the meantime, Duke Adouin has given permission for you to contact the Knocker Duchess, but asks that you refrain from exploiting, mining, farming, or claiming the dungeon, Brienne informed me. It seemed prudent. I wasn't really interested in a dungeon dive. I did not want to satisfy my curiosity and find out what dungeons were like, but I could do that without exploiting the dungeon. The conditions were acceptable, because they allowed me to do what I wanted. While secretly acknowledging I would have paid a visit to this dungeon even if the Duke had refused permission, I readily agreed to the Duke's limitations and began making plans to move out as soon as possible. I spoke to Blaine about a guide and proctored an invitation to him to join me. I didn't think he or Una would wish to join the group. They would have their hands full, with her reconstructing. But it would be rude to not offer them the choice. They thought it best if they were there to receive Duke Adowin's people, and trusted Irvin to update them after our return. They were able to locate a suitable guide, a young runner that often ferried gear and supplies to the mining camp, a quick meal, a restock of provisions, and a communication crystal conversation with Brianne and Jenny to inform them of our plans, directing them to head to Duke Adowin's Fife instead of awaiting our arrival and we were ready to set out. We skipped the edges of the lake until eventually encountering a tributary. To say it was a spring or a creek would be disparaging. It was at least a small river, about a mile across as it emptied into the herd's waters. The Kelpie had no need for bridges. They simply forded the river in their water form. It was here that riding mounts made more sense to me than using a skimmer. The gentle beasts that had bonded and imprinted on us were easily convinced to traverse and follow the Kelpies into the water. What was surprising and was really interesting was the adaptability of the riding equipment, a few adjustments to frequency and attunement, and the force barrier that was usually projected to keep out winds and bugs instead adapted to generate a field of energy that would keep mount and rider dry. The mounts still had to wade and swim, but their progress was made much simpler as the water was displaced, a wedge of force creating a path that eased travel and kept mount and rider alike from panic when strong streams and rushing waters were encountered. I wondered briefly why the equipment didn't come with a setting to allow the animals to simply walk on water. It seemed an easy adjustment to harden the force barrier under each mount so they could step on the projected energy barrier. I added it to the growing list of items that I would need to understand and as a possible technological innovation, something I might be able to cobble together as a source of funding when I had my own lands. The only difficult part of the trip occurred when we needed to cross a ravine. It was the reason we hadn't simply been given a map and coordinates and sent on our way. Our guide led us to a felled tree that served as a pathway, and shortened the distance we would need to go. If not for this crossing, our journey would be extended for days longer. And although the path was tricky and hard to navigate, the real challenge had been discovering the starting point. The way through was glamoured and camouflaged, making it hard to find. Lord Hayden had used brush, and forest growth to hide his actions and enhance the glamour that had been cast. A hedge had been crafted and encouraged to grow into a maze-like structure, protected by small arrays, had been stationed strategically along the maze path, and if triggered, would cast confusion. Those not versed in the secrets of this maze might find themselves trapped here, indefinitely. The further we travelled, the more sense that made. The lands we were crossing could no longer be logically claimed as herd lands. How they found this mine would need to be something else Duke Adewine would have to discover. It was possible that this area was unclaimed, and the Kelpie would by treaty or eminent domain claim possession. But if they had encroached on another lord's territory, withheld taxes and failure to register a dungeon would be the least of the issues Blaine would need to consider. Lord Hayden may have invited war between territories. We entered the maze cautiously, marked out a trail, and always made left turns. The guide was uncertain of the correct path, never having actually walked the maze. It made no difference that we were systematic and methodical in approach. The more we walked the paths that had been constructed, the more lost we became. It was after the third time that we found the entrance to the maze that Lorne realized that the arrays that cast confusion were placed there as misdirection. They were formation keystones, arrays linked to a much more powerful formation that continuously allowed the maze to restructure paths, move markers, and would always lead the party back to the entrance. Our guide had no idea how to turn off the formation or negate the effects. The Kelpie didn't use this path. It was easier for them to assume serpent form and simply swim upstream using the river, which is probably how they managed to find the mine in the first place. You could burn the maize to the ground, Euron suggested. I doubt the formation is powerful enough to regrow destroyed edges. I wouldn't be so sure of that, Lauren replied. Kelpie make the best farmers for a reason. It's not just because their horse forms allow them advantages in tilling and plowing the land. They have a connection with plants. If they fertilize these hedges with their blood, I doubt fire will work. The regenerative properties of the blood will mean the hedges simply rebuild and repair the damage. Are they still tied to nature and the cycle of dormancy that happens during winter? I asked. They should be, Lorne answered, after taking a moment to consider my question. But we are in a temperate zone. It never gets cold enough for plants to enter dormancy here and winter is still months away. Did you get a new aura? Cedric wondered. I'm not sure, I responded. If I can radiate Belarus's aura, wouldn't it make sense that I would be able to do the same with Cryonex' aura? It might just work, Lorne agreed. And depending on the temperature you can generate with the aura, you might be able to destroy the formation. Cryonex was the god of winter, when I'd fought with the Wild Hunt, I'd managed somehow to change the properties of Belarus's aura so that it burned cold fire. The principles should be the same. I knew how to create spells. Creating a fireball spell had shown me that the process was pretty straightforward. Will, form, intent. I connected almost instinctively with magic by now, shaping paths and holding the possibility in my mental grasp. Motioning for everyone to stand back, I moved to the entrance of the maze and released my intent. Cryonax Aura learned. You have imbued your aura with aspects and power from the Cryonax bloodline. Cryonax Aura, elemental ice debuff. Increase ice damage. Extending Cryonax Aura as I would Belarus's aura, I watched as plants fought against the effects of cold and winter regenerating and repairing any damage they took. The aura I was generating wasn't cold enough to do what I'd envisioned. Reaching deeper, I fought to grasp that part of my bloodline that made me unseelie, the magics and inheritance that the god Cryonax had left me. Slowly, as I coaxed and harnessed the bits of me that I had long ignored, that had just awakened, I began to gain control. As I gained control, I experienced the same pleasure the same satisfaction I experienced when I projected Belarus's aura. I realized that I had fallen into a trap. A mental bias and prejudice had somehow taken root in my mental landscape. I had assigned values and traits to the unsealy that had no reason, good and evil, seely versus unsealy. I had allowed myself to become inured into attitudes and beliefs that had no basis. I hadn't met an unseelie yet, but still, I'd begun to think of them as others. I knew the fallacy of logic that kind of thinking generated. Good and evil existed in all people. I'd been holding back from embracing my unseelie nature, not because I'd had no time to really compartmentalize or examine the benefits that bloodline would bring, but I had erroneously linked that unseelie with evil.